Your Excellency. Isn't there something I can do? Yes, but I'll talk to you about that later. It's the Marx Brothers Council Podcast. This is episode number 40, Aboard This Tiny Ship. Hi again, everyone. This is Bob Gassell. Glad to be back. Glad to be with you. Um, you know what? I'm going to dispense with our normal introductions uh, today. Uh, I'm thinking we have some listeners who aren't normal listeners to the show, so maybe they really need to know who I'm co-hosting with. So why don't we do that? First of all, from Washington Heights, he is a performer. He is an author. He is a designer. He is this generation's Orson Bean. He is Noah Diamond. <laughs> Thank you for that serious introduction, Bob. It's nice to f- <laughs> it's nice to finally be taken seriously on this show. And from across the pond in Bath, England, we have the founder of the Marx Brothers Council. He's the reason we're all here today. He's also an author. He's written the annotated Marx Brothers and uh, That's Me Groucho. And he's actually got another one in the pipeline uh, coming soon, the annotated Abbott and Costello. Here is the annotated Matthew Conium. Hello. Thank you. I've often wondered who was the reason we're all here today. I'm glad to know it's me. (laughs) So a couple months ago, we did a podcast with our friend Hannah Mira, who talked about introducing the Marx Brothers to her students who happened to be incarcerated teens. It was really a wonderful show, and it got a lot of great feedback. But I did get a few letters that said, Bob, my kids aren't incarcerated. Do the Marx (laughs) Brothers have anything to offer them? And this got me to thinking, who can we get to talk about showing the Marx Brothers to kids who aren't in jail? And of course, only one name came to mind. The movie mom, Nell Minow. Nell comes from an esteemed American family. Uh, We'll get into that a bit later. And in fact, she is so personally accomplished that she has a Wikipedia page that she didn't have to put up herself. (laughs) But in her role as the movie mom, she's appeared in newspapers and magazines across the country, done radio shows, TV appearances on national networks. She's written a couple of books and is basically the go-to person for movies and families. So here she is, the movie mom herself, Nell Minow. Thank you very much. I'm absolutely delighted to be here. And I have to tell you that the last podcast I was on, which was about a week ago, which just dropped yesterday, was a very serious financial podcast. But I mentioned the Marx Brothers on it. Now, how did that come up? Were you talking about how Groucho lost everything during the crash? No, I was telling a a real story uh, about a board of directors that was so terrible that not one of them got 50% of the vote from the shareholders. And as required by the company rules, they had to tender their resignations. But since they were the board of directors, they tendered them to themselves and they turned them down. And I said, only the Marx Brothers could could play that scene. (laughs) (laughs) Now, uh, before we forge ahead, a little disclaimer here. You might be wondering how the heck did they get Nell Minow to appear on their little podcast? Well, I got to come clean here. Um, Nell is a relative of mine. Our grandfathers uh, were brothers. Our moms were first cousins. So I used that little bit of leverage to try and convince her to come on. Well, actually, I I don't think I used that much leverage because she is a Marx Brothers fan. So let's start off by talking about the movie mom. I got to be honest, when I first heard this name, I was thinking, "Uh uh-oh, is this the church lady or something? uh, uh, I shouldn't have been worried. Obviously, you do get into whether there's sex and violence and inappropriate stuff um, 
that the kids shouldn't see. But it seems like the point of the column is to discuss the overall themes and whether there's actual value in the film for the kids. Am I correct? And that's the, the approach? Yeah, it's actually more about just empowering parents to make their own decisions. You know, I have two children and anyone who's had more than one child knows that they are who they are from the minute they're born. I had one who loved scary movies and one who is just like me, always thinks that Lassie's not going to get Timmy out of the well and gets very upset. So yeah. uh, so you have. I just try to give parents the information they need to know what's right for their child and their family. And also, as you said, to help direct them toward great movies, a lot of classic movies that uh, that they might otherwise have overlooked. And this all began, you remember the old days when we had video stores and I would go into the video store and I would see parents standing helplessly in front of the new releases shelf, looking like they were going down for the third time and asking the 15 year old at the cash register if something was right for kids and uh, I said, well, you know, and, and I was also very, very interested in the Internet. So I said, well, I'll just start something on the Internet where I can give parents advice. And at that time, this was 1995, there was not a single publication or corporation on the Internet. It was mostly college students and people in the military. Uh, you know, here's a picture of my coffee pot and a picture of my dog. So I was really on very early. And as the Internet grew up around me, you know, just five years later, Yahoo called and said, would you like to be our movie critic? Not because of, you know, how great my reviews were really, but because I had an archive. Uh, so it could be up and running right away. And, uh, and you know, then I wrote the book and um, started going on the radio and uh, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, I just felt that I wanted to be a movie critic. I started out as a critic for my high school and college papers, and I had to be myself. I had to, you know, I couldn't be another Roger Ebert. I had to be who I was. And who was I? I was somebody who knew something about child development, who was a mom, so I could bring my perspective. Okay, so let's dive into this. Um, tell us how you first became aware of the Marxes and when did you become a fan? Uh, I have extremely vivid memories of that. You know, my family is very media oriented. My father was the chairman of the Federal Communications Commission during the Kennedy administration. He was the first person in that job, and I think still the only one, to tell the broadcasters that they had to do better or would lose their licenses. And Sherwood Schwartz got so angry about that, he named the sinking ship on Gilligan's Island after my dad and called it the SS Minnow. Uh, which we think is great. We're super proud of that. Um, you know, he, my dad was in Mad Magazine. He was the made fun of on Rocky and Voinkle. It was a really fun way to grow up and to become very aware of media. And my parents were always and are still in their 90s, huge fans of classic movies and would be the first to say, oh, oh, there's this movie called uh, All About Eve. It's coming on TV. You have to watch this movie. You're going to love it. And we had a 16 millimeter sound projector and my parents had access to movies and they would bring them home for us. I think the first time I was at all aware of the Marx brothers was in that old Warner brothers cartoon about Hollywood, which had a caricature of them and, uh, and of the, you bet your life TV show, which I loved in reruns. And so I knew about Groucho from that, but I still, I very vividly remember my father bringing home a night at the opera for our 16 millimeter projector. And, uh, and I 
he said, you know, okay, I guess it's, it's that guy from uh, You Bet Your Life. I'll watch it. And I literally, literally fell off my chair. I was laughing so hard. I landed on the floor. I could not, that was during the sanity clause scene. And, uh, you know, we still had, you know, the stateroom scene and so much yet to come. Uh, and I was at an age where I realized for the first time that it was possible for something to be both canonical and anarchic, you know, that it was anarchy and yet it was beloved by people. And so when I was just a little bit older, um, I only had two posters in my teenage bedroom. One was Jean-Paul Belmondo and one was the Marx Brothers. Was it the famous uh, hookah one? Yes, it was. (laughs) (laughs) We all had that, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Now, just to clarify for those who might not be aware, Nell's father is Newton Minow, who was, uh, as she mentioned, the chairman of the Federal Communications Commission under JFK and has gone down in history for his uh, comments uh, calling television a vast wasteland. And it's sort of ironic because he has a relative, uh, me, who worked on uh, the Jerry Springer show. So, <laughs> you know, you could put two and two together and make it that what you want. But uh, anyhow, I know you grew up with a couple of sisters in the house. I- I'm not that aware. I- Do you have a brother? As my mother would always say, what are those? No, I no, I don't. So it's a pretty I have, much a female I, household. It's a very female household. Yeah, I'm the oldest of three girls. I, I married, like just like Jane Powell in uh, Seven Brides to Seven Brothers, I married into a family of brothers. And so I kind of evened it out that way. Now, before we get to uh, your encounters with the Marxes, let me ask you, uh, what are your favorite Marx films? And uh, do you have any scenes that stick out for you? You know, I'm always going to be, Night of the Opera imprinted on me like the Mother Goose imprints on the Goslings. It was such a a vital moment in in my life as a, you know, as a, as I said, as a person of understanding about comedy and, and uh, that I really, it really imprinted on me. After that, I would say, even you guys have to admit that the movies are uh, spotty, that there are, you know, there are stronger moments and weaker moments. So I think I think about moments rather than movies. Obviously, Duck Soup uh, would be tied for first place for me. Mm. But then there are moments in the other movies, even the ones that are weaker, uh, that I love. And I have a particular affection for uh, Groucho's songs. So anytime Mm. Groucho sings, I'm very happy. and I love all of his songs. And in fact, I, I listen to them now on uh, my digital media. So have you attempted to turn your kids onto the Marxists? Absolutely. Well, you know, one of the reasons I wrote my book about uh, the Movie Mom's Guide to Family Movies was because I did uh, introduce my children to classic movies very young. And mm-hmm. one of the very first that I introduced them to was Night at the Opera. And I still remember my daughter, who now works in Hollywood. I'll get to that in a minute. My daughter was quite young. And she said, I don't like black and white movies, which is, you know, heresy in my mm-hmm. household. And I, I said, OK, well, I guess uh, you can go color and your brother and I will watch this movie. And she said, I will watch it for 10 minutes. I said, okay. And, you know, 10 minutes in, she was hooked. So, and, and one of the proudest moments of my life was when she was in high school and she said, some of my friends want to come over and watch Night at the Opera. And I said, my work is done. I'm a successful mom. You still have that 16 millimeter print laying around? No, that was borrowed. That was, that did not belong to us. Uh, But I was lucky enough to, I was born in 1952 
And I was lucky enough that by the time that I was really in love with the Marx Brothers, they were having a big renaissance. And mm -hmm. Groucho was still around and was doing a lot of interviews. And in fact, if, you, if you're ready for my story of how I met Groucho, yeah. uh, yes, I was in college and I th there was a Marx Brothers Film Festival, five of their movies in two days, and he was going to appear. Where was this? This was at Northwestern. Oh, yeah, in 1970. I, there's, yes, there's photos of that event. Yeah, okay, I was there. Uh, yeah, okay. Because I lived right near Northwestern. I guess in 1970, I was still in high school. So I went to that, uh, five movies in two days. It took mm -hmm. me years to sort them all out. <laughs> After that, after sitting through them all at once like that, until I realized that not one but two of them had stowaway scenes, you know. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so, you know, it was like one long, undifferentiated movie. Uh, but anyway, Groucho appeared and I went up to talk to him. I was still in high school because I remember this. And uh, he said, how old are you, honey? And I said, 17. And he said, too old for me, but I'll kiss you anyway. And he... <laughs> And he kissed me on the cheek, and I still remember how scratchy his mustache was. <laughs> so I bet I'm the only person to appear on your podcast who's been kissed by Groucho Marx. Well, I'm not so sure about that. We did have Andy Marx on, his grandson. And I think we should check with John Tefteller, too. <laughs> yeah, Steve Stolier, too. They might have yeah. st stolen a smooch here and there. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's fascinating. That, that appearances you talk about, it's discussed quite a bit on our Facebook group. Oh, is that right? And actually, there's rumors now that an audio recording of the event exists. So hopefully that'll come to light soon. Wow. Now, you also mentioned to me that you encountered one of the other brothers. I did. I met Gummo. Uh, my, my grandparents, not on your side of the family, but my other side of the family, my grandparents moved to Palm Springs when it was mm. really... A very small town and there were a lot of uh, retired people from the Midwest and there were a lot of movie stars and my grandfather who came to this country right out of filler on the roof land in uh, the Ukraine when he mm. was a child and um, really was the ultimate American dream that he, he grew up, he started a business, he did well, he retired to Palm Springs. He became very friendly with the Marx Brothers who were there, which was Gummo and Harpo. And uh, so I met Gummo uh, at a dinner party at my grandparents' house. <laughs> and he said to me, you know, I'm, I'm the one that wasn't in the movies. I said, yeah, I know. <laughs> 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 but I'll tell you, my grandmother became very friendly with uh, Susan Marks, uh, mm -hmm. Harpo's wife and widow. And they worked together on opposing a big development that was going on in Palm Springs and successfully got it cut back uh, mm -hmm. for environmental reasons. And she also became very friendly with Zeppo's ex, Barbara Marks. And I have to tell you a funny story about that, which is that Barbara Marks moved to the house next door to my grandmother just after she separated from Zeppo. And, you know, she was pretty sad and lonely. And, and uh, so my grandmother was, you know, always bringing her food and, and hanging out with her. And they were in and out of each other's kitchens all the time. And uh, one day my grandmother went over and walked into the kitchen and sitting in the kitchen was Frank Sinatra. Uh, and uh, who nobody knew at the time they were dating and later got married. And Barbara 
Marx said to my grandmother, oh, hello, Doris. You know Frank, don't you? <laughs> so anyway, so that's so I met Gummo and I met Susan Marx as well. Just a very, very lovely lady. So what were you saying about your daughter working in the uh, film world? Yes. My daughter is a costume designer in Hollywood, married to a screenwriter who has had five movies on television. And mm -hmm. she just finished work on uh, the next Steven Spielberg movie and on a new pirate TV series from Taika Waititi. Ooh, very, very impressive. So obviously the movie exposure had an effect on her. The Marx Brothers costumes had an effect on her? <laughs> well, all the, all the costumes, all the costumes. Mm -hmm. Wait till this Spielberg movie comes out. You'll see the influence. <laughs> um, now, you had mentioned to me that uh, your dad uh, had played golf with Harpo. What, what can you he tell did. us about that? My grandfather played golf with Harpo quite often, and my father joined them once. And I asked him last night uh, about it, and he said the funniest thing that happened. He said, "He said, look, I knew he wasn't going to be have the curly hair, and I knew he wasn't going to, you know, honk a horn or anything. But he said I was a little surprised by just how ordinary he seemed." Mm. Uh, he said, "But, but at one point." He hit a great shot, and he got so excited, he jumped up and down and then lay down on the ground. And that was very unusual for, for this very, very proper golf club, but he got a big kick out of that. Did that golf game happen in Palm Springs? Yes. Possibly at the golf course where Harpo's ashes were eventually scattered. Yes, Tamarisk, yeah. Tamarisk, yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. so That's right. That is right. Harpo, in some sense, uh, is still there. the rest of eternity on That's that. That's right. Well, yeah, he's still there. Yeah. <laughs> Now, when we were setting this podcast up, you sent me this video clip of uh, Groucho and William F. Buckley and the Dick Cavett Show, and you were all excited. You were like, listen to this, Groucho refers to my dad. And uh, to be honest, he doesn't exactly uh, compliment your dad uh, here. It's not exactly a ringing endorsement. Well, let me play the clip. Okay. And who was this fellow who, three, four years ago, who stole a line of T.S. Eliot, and uh, he termed television the wasteland? I eventually you, accused you, you, him you know. of this. I met him at a restaurant one night. I said, you're very talented and very brave, but why do you have to steal T.S. Eliot's lines when he happens to be in England? Anyhow, well, I must tell you about T.S. Eliot. T.S. Eliot didn't invent the word wasteland. <laughs> it had never been used generally, I mean. Well, it, I didn't it, hear anybody it, in the it, street. I'd walk down... <laughs> Okay, first of all, Groucho is obviously showing off there about how well-read he is. Uh, he never passed up a chance to do that. But uh, anyhow, your dad, did, did he ever comment about this? Did he? Oh, he got, a big, he got a big kick out of it. I don't know that they ever met each other. I think he made that up. Uh, but, uh, cause, uh, but, but he actually he said nice things about my dad. He just mm -hmm. wanted, as you said, he just wanted to show off that he knew T.S. Eliot. Let's see. And had not ever heard the word wasteland on the street in <laughs> casual conversation. <laughs> in any other context. <laughs> yeah. Boy, this traffic is a wasteland today. <laughs> so any other encounters with uh, any classic comedians? Yes. Uh, at Tamarisk, uh, I met Bob Hope. Uh, and uh, at, also at Tamarisk, uh, uh, Milton Berle, uh, Danny Thomas. I saw uh, Lucille Ball while I was out in Palm Springs. Um, mm. You know, it was kind of like uh, a free zone uh, for the celebrities from 
Hollywood. It wasn't like today where people are taking pictures of them all the time. And uh, my grandfather's proudest moment of his life was that Elizabeth Taylor asked him where the ladies' room was. (laughs) (laughs) And did he know? He did. He did. It was right next to the men's room. Those comedians that you met, were any of them either, either notably like or notably unlike how you would have expected them to be? Uh, the funniest thing about meeting Danny Thomas and Milton Berle, I wanted to meet Danny Thomas because uh, I was a big fan of Marlo Thomas and the TV show That Girl. That you know, I I knew about Make Room for Daddy. I knew, but for me, that was that was the exciting part. And they were having lunch at Tamarisk, and my father and I said, I you know, I really want to meet them. And I normally he would not have gone over to bother them, but because I wanted to go, he took me over them. So they went over, and they sort of looked at him like, oh. You know, here I am being accosted by yet another civilian. And my father said, excuse me, um, I'm Newton Minow. And they both jumped to their feet and they said, oh, Mr. Minow. (laughs) (laughs) I got a big kick out of that. And I told Danny Thomas how much I liked Marlo Thomas. And of course, he was very happy to hear it. And they were very, very, very nice. And Bob Hope, I would say, was in very much celebrity mode which was uh gracious but re- eager to get on to the golf game yeah that, that sounds like hope uh mm-hmm. anyhow let's let's switch yeah. gears here and talk about the classic films and you know how you think they fit in the today's society i have a couple of teen kids and it's very hard to get them to watch anything you know more than like 10 15 years old they they, they don't want to see it i mean there might be a handful of things back to the future maybe one or two others but it's totally different when it comes to music. Classic rock, it seems like most kids love, you know, Pink Floyd, Led Zeppelin, Beatles, whatever. But try and show them a film from 1975, they're, they're not interested in the least. Yeah, I think that uh, that is a big issue. That's why I tell parents, you've got to get them into them very, very young, because by the time they're teenagers, they're going to be so inculcated with a kind of very fast cuts and explosive effects that uh, it's very hard to sort of uh, retrofit them into the older movies. On the other hand, on the considerable other hand, you know, when I think about how I went to that um, festival at Northwestern uh, and how excited I was because that was the only way I was going to get to see those movies. I couldn't just call them up on Netflix or even a video store. None of that had been invented yet. I still only had five channels on my TV. And that was in a major metropolitan area. A lot of places only had two or three channels. So um, so as for today, uh, I'm actually astonished by how many young people I meet who watch Turner Classic movies and uh, other uh, classics on uh, YouTube and are, are as familiar with, you know, third tier performers like George Brent that uh, than much more than say when I was in college. So I think it's kind of a, 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 a wash in a way that yes, it is hard, especially for your own kids to get them to be interested. And I hear a lot of complaints. I just heard uh, from somebody this week who showed a favorite movie from the seventies to her child who said, this is boring. I hate it. You know, but I think eventually they will come around because the movies are so much more available than they ever were. Yeah, but on the other hand, I think for a lot of us, the reason we first got into these films and these comedians is because we really had nothing else to look at. Uh, You know, in Chicago, I was growing up watching WGN, and um, 
on a Saturday afternoon, if you didn't want to watch the golf tournament or the football game in the, on the other channels, uh, what do you, what could you see? Oh, look, here's a WC Fields film or an Evan and Costello film or a Marx Brothers film. So that's what you, you turned on and you started to appreciate it. And I might not have done that. I, I'm sh- In fact, I'm sure I wouldn't have done that if I got to turn on an all Bugs Buddy channel or, you know, a Superman channel or something like that. So, you know, we were sort of, forced into it. And thank God for that. That is true. One of the most formative experiences of my life and coincidentally, one that is shared by my son-in-law, we're the only two people I know that have had this, is that we both spent our 16th summer in bed watching movies. Uh, He was in a uh, recovering from a bicycle accident. I had a serious case of uh, mono and hepatitis and which I got, I came down with on the last day of school. So the entire summer I was in bed. And as you said, I had, I had WGN. Yeah. I had a little black and white TV that my parents rolled into my bedroom. And, uh, you know, I mean, it was a shame at the time because I was 16, but in retrospect, it was one of the greatest experiences of my life because I had to watch what was on. I couldn't pick what I wanted to see. So in the, so this was in, the 60s. So a lot of movies from the 40s and 50s on TV. And I got to begin to think about the impact that a director has. I got to watch certain actors through different movies and see how they uh, aged and how they uh, handled different roles differently. I got to think seriously about movies for the first time. And it was not a bad way to spend a summer. And uh, and I, um, I'm really grateful for it. It gave me a lot of perspective. And so I think that the availability of these older movies, you know, it's not just Tiger King. I think the Marx Brothers will always, always, always be popular. And it's also, they're important as historical artifacts. I mean, I talked about the scene in A Day of the Races, and it's important that we look at stuff like that and say, now, why was that okay back then? And how do we think about it now? And uh, just to clarify, tell us what scene you're referring to. Oh, just just all the all the happy jiving black people singing and dancing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's an interesting point, isn't it? I mean, we classic films on one hand seem like they have an inherent wholesome quality, um, and they seem safe for children because of that. We we know that in a, a classic Hollywood film, we're not going to see you know graphic, disturbing violence. We're not going to see anything that's more sexually explicit than what you would see in children's entertainment now. But in in milder and and more subtle ways, they they do contain in a way. Content that could be harmful, developmentally harmful, in their depictions of gender and race and things that are are now very retrograde. Um, I wonder, either in that area or in other areas, is there anything in the Marx Brothers film specifically that that feels, by movie mom standards, inappropriate for children? Um, no more so than any other film of the era. I mean, I think of a movie like uh, Destry, which is a wonderful movie. And then in the very last minute of the movie, they use a word that is just shockingly inappropriate now in a song. Um, and you, so you have to just be aware of those things that come up. And there's a Shirley Temple movie, again, just a wonderful, wholesome, sugary, great movie. But the treatment of the uh, porter on the train is 
of its era and not appropriate today. And so all you have to do, you know, you've got to be very aware of that and, um, and, and put it in some kind of a context. And, you know, I always say that the motto of the movie mom is no bad surprises. So parents should know exactly what to expect and then they can know. So that if a, a, a movie has a, an adoption theme, that's going to be completely untroubling for many families. It may be an issue for others, that kind of those are the kinds of things that I like to alert parents to. So it's not just sex, violence, and language, but it's other things that may be uh, triggering, to use a contemporary term, for, for some families. So no matter what you do, you know, it's interesting to me that uh, I remember back when Groucho was doing this series of interviews uh, in my teens, and I read as much as I could about him. There was one where somebody said, you know, I really appreciate the ethnic diversity of the Marx Brothers and, uh, you know, that, that has such a deep theme about, uh, you know, whatever, some, some very, very complicated uh, idea about it. And Groucho, of course, said, <laughs> I can't even use the word, but he said, we just thought it would be funny if we made Chico a blank. And, uh, I, you know, that, that comes out of the vaudeville era where ethnic humor was at least half of the jokes of that era because of all the immigrants. And today we look at it one way uh, and it seems kind of charming and sweet, but we have to realize where it all came from. Groucho cigars as well, I think could be mildly problematic. I don't know um, <laughs> if I don't know if it's the same over there um, as it is here, but here um, in the, with the little sensor age ratings that you get on DVD, they yeah. they they have little descriptions, um, strange things like contains mild peril, yeah, and they always say uh, contains smoking scenes. Yes, now. we do have that here. Mm. Uh, that was the result of a considerable lobbying effort. Sometimes they'll say contains historical smoking, so you have a movie like Apollo mm. Apollo 13, where, you know, everybody's sitting there in NASA just, you know, smoking, smoking, smoking. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, my, my favorite, by the way, which I think you need a degree in semiotics to figure out what it means, is they'll say rated PG-13 for thematic issues. Yeah. <laughs> Keep those away from kids. Yeah. <laughs> so everyone's putting disclaimers at the beginning of films now and on the boxes. Uh, do you think that's the best way to approach this? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I do. I, I think, uh, what I always tell parents is the minute you become a parent, you start looking at the grocery store differently. You start picking up the package and reading the ingredients and you're just going to have to do the same for the media that they absorb as well. And a lot of things are just misunderstood because of the passage of time. A perfect example is, you know, duck soup or Groucho. Uh, quotes a line from a song, uh, That's Why Darkies Were Born. I think it was a hit for uh, Kate Smith. But, uh, you know, you show that to an audience now and everybody gasps, but uh, they just don't understand the the original context. Yeah, well, th you know, that's, that's history. And that's, you know, we have to acknowledge it. And that's why we need uh, annotated versions, uh, uh, books to, to uh -oh. help us uh, understand you have said that. that. I've got an I've got an annotated uh, Christmas Carol, which I bought specifically because there was one line in a Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens that I always wanted to understand what it was referring to, and uh, so I found out. Ah, oh, there we go. <laughs> As Matthew whips out his book, yes, I know. That's why that's why I mentioned it. But yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, in a way, it's like reading, um, you know, any any classic work, whether you're reading uh, Dante or Shakespeare. 
or or Gilbert and Sullivan, they're going to, you know, they'll say this is what it's referring to. It helps you understand it better. And even though, say, Gilbert and Sullivan or the Marx Brothers, very relevant to today's political climate, uh, it's it helps us to understand uh, where it all came from. Just going back to when uh, you said you you met Groucho and he um, he appeared on stage, um, as, as as Bob said, there is this this talk of, a, of possibly uh, some audio um, existing of that. Can you remember how how much of a how much of a performance he gave? Was it was it just hello, thank you, and nice to be here, or did he do a, a bit of a bit of Groucho? He did a bit of Groucho, but I would say quite candidly that I think he was not at his best, uh, that he was, uh, let's say, uh, not fully engaged in the process and in, in, yeah. the, in the questions. And, and we've heard uh, that from other people who were there. Yeah. And that he, he was at a stage and I, as I said, I read a lot of his interviews during this time, uh, when he was really out and around a lot, uh, that, you know, he, he was often quite vulgar and um and non-responsive in that way and uh mm. so i'm not sure that yeah but it was just very exciting to see him mm. we actually got into this subject quite deeply in our uh, last podcast uh discussing the marx brothers scrapbook and mm-hmm. we were theorizing or at least i was that groucho was becoming this way because perhaps he was trying to appeal to the uh younger audience the young generation and thought this was the way to go about it i i don't think think I don't I honestly you know even though I know that was the era of free love blah 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 but I don't think that was it I think uh honestly I think he may have had some cognitive decline yeah I think it's fairly obvious he was declining somewhat rapidly starting around 1970 the strokes and everything were taking its toll but he was you know he was not like Harpo and let me just say that you know I know you've talked about this before but let me just reiterate an endorsement for Harpo Speaks as one of my absolute favorite uh, memoirs of all time. And the thing that's so great about it is not so much the uh, experiences that he's relating, but just you get such a sense of what a warm and smart and thoughtful and curious guy he was. And his and and by the way, if you have not read Alan Sherman's uh, memoir, uh, Alan Sherman, the singer of uh, Hello Mata, Hello Fada, uh, he was... Uh, a neighbor of Harpo's and he has a whole chapter about Harpo that is absolutely delightful. Um, and you know, so Groucho was not like that. I don't think he was ever like that. He was never somebody who was going to sit down and listen to you and engage, uh, at, uh, you know, uh, thoughtfully, he was always going to be kind of a quipster. You know, I think Groucho has got to be turning over in his grave knowing that, uh, despite all his efforts to be a world-class noted writer, the one autobiography uh, that Marx Brothers fans seem to treasure the most is uh, Harpo Speaks. Right, right. Well, he, I guess he'd been penting up a, a lot of things to say for a long time. <laughs> That's one of the great ironies, isn't mm-hmm. it? Yeah. But Harpo didn't have anything to prove as a writer. He mm-hmm. wasn't trying to prove that he was this uh, literary giant. And his relaxed way of just telling his own story as a human wound up being much more affecting than Groucho striving to to join the class of great literary satirists. You're absolutely right. And I'll tell you that my husband surprised me some years ago by taking me to a uh, what had once been a, a very luxurious mansion and is now a hotel. And as soon as I walked into it, I said, oh my gosh, 
Harpo described this place in his book. And I called it up on my Kindle and there it was. It was a mansion that he visited where he played these croquet games. And mm. the minute I walked in, it just all came right back to me. Just from a description, from a written description. That's quite something. Yeah. Isn't it? Uh, yeah. 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 You had mentioned Susan earlier. Um, mm -hmm. I don't yeah. know if you were aware, but her autobiography, which was done shortly before her death and was put away and never published, um, is actually going to come out uh, next year. It's going to. Oh, wonderful! I hope she mentions the fight with the developers. <laughs> well, that's up to Robert Bader whether that uh, stays. <laughs> in. Anyhow, Nell, we want to thank you so much for coming on. This has really been an honor and a thrill for all of us, and particularly me, because I haven't spoken to you in, a, I don't know how long, maybe forever? I don't know. <laughs> but, um, you know, as is our custom, we are going to put you on the spot here and have you introduce the uh, exit song for today's episode. So what do you want to hear on our way out? Oh, Lydia, 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 the tattooed lady. Okay. Uh, from that vast wasteland of a Marx Brothers film at the circus. Here it is. My life was wrapped around a circus. Her name was Lydia. I met her at the World's Fair in 1900, marked down from 1940. Ah, Lydia. She was the most glorious creature under the sun. Thais, Dubani, Gabo. Rolled into one. Oh, Lydia, oh, Lydia, say, have you met Lydia? Lydia, the tattooed lady. She has eyes that folks adore so, and a torso even more so. Lydia, oh, Lydia, that encyclopedia. Oh, Lydia, the queen of tattoo. On her back is the Battle of Waterloo. Beside it, the wreck of the Hesperus, too. And proudly above waves the red, white, and blue. You can learn a lot from Lydia. When a robe is unfurled, she will show you the world. If you step up and tell her where. For a dime you can see Kankakee or Paris or Washington crossing the Delaware. Start relaxing Up the hill comes Andrew Jackson Lydia, oh Lydia That encyclopedia Oh Lydia, the queen of them all For two bits she will do A mazurka in jazz With a view of Niagara that nobody has And on a clear day You can see Alcatraz You can learn a lot from Lydia Come along and see Buffalo Bill with his lasso. Just a little classic by Mendel Picasso. Here is Captain Spaulding exploring the Amazon. Here's Godiva, but with her pajamas on. Here is Grover Whalen unveiling the Trilon. Over on the west coast, we have Treasure Island. Here's Nijinsky doing the rubber. Here's her social security number. Oh, Lydia, oh, Lydia, that encyclopedia. 
She once swept an admiral clear off his feet. The ships on her hips made his heart skip a beat. And now the old boy's in command of the fleet. For he went and married Lydia. I said Lydia. He said Lydia. They said Lydia. We said Lydia. La, la. The Marx Brothers Council podcast is produced and edited by Bob Gassell. Matthew Cunningham's books, The Annotated Marx Brothers, and That's Me, Groucho, are published by McFarland. Noah Diamond's book, Give Me a Thrill, The Story of All Say She Is, is published by Bear Manor Media. Both can be found at major book outlets. For more info on this and all episodes, visit our website at MarxBrothersCouncilPodcast.com. Also look for us on Twitter. And for the place to talk Marx and meet fellow fans, join us on the lively Marx Brothers Council Facebook group. See you next time! <laughs>